enter the creative world of FjordCast. Explore a variety of trends in the creative landscape, getting insider knowledge and advice from the industry's best. Fjord is proud to present FjordCast with host Tim Barsness. Thanks for joining us on FjordCast. I'm Tim Barsness, founder of web and mobile development team Fjord. And today on our show, we will be talking with Marissa Ryan about her digital marketing agency, Visual Fizz. Welcome to the show, Marissa. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad you could be here. Can you tell us a little bit about Visual Fizz? Yeah. So Visual Fizz is uh, mine and my co-founder's little brainchild. Uh, it's a digital marketing agency. Um, and what really sets us apart from the other agencies in the Chicago area or the Midwest area or even the country um, is that we kind of aim to reconnect the analog, actual human emotions back into what it means to be involved in digital marketing. So we call this an experiential approach to concepts like SEO, paid search, social media marketing, uh, even content writing. And we focus on how to actually bring data in from measuring the performance of those channels um, and how, the, how that connects to a real person's experience with a product or service and then actually kind of filters into a buying decision. When was the company founded? Um, this year, actually. <laughs> it was right. founded in February, yeah. So my uh, my co-founder and I have both been in digital marketing for five years, five years plus, um, and it was just kind of the right step for us. So it feels like much longer than 10 months, but it's been about 10 months. Very cool. And, and team size right now? Yeah, there's actually, I think, about eight full-time members, eight or nine. Um, we have kind of an interesting setup. So we have uh, kind of an extended team, but our core team consists of eight that sounds like a pretty solid start. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we were excited with how quickly it kind of took off the ground for us. So what drove you to start the company? Yeah, so in my personal life, um, I had been just kind of freelancing and, and doing my own contractor thing, and it was perfectly mediocre. <laughs> um, I was just kind of floating along, uh, not really striving to make any new career changes, not really trying to do anything different, um, but still kind of chugging away, chipping away at the digital marketing uh, career. So when I met Dan, my co-founder, it just kind of all fell into place for us. It made a lot of sense for us to to build an agency and actually grow something that's scalable uh, to take on more clients, more than the, the five or 10 that I was able to take on myself, um, actually provide full service instead of just you know pieces of, of a marketing strategy. Uh, so it just kind of made sense for us to, to move forward into something bigger and we've been growing ever since. Tell me a little bit more about your perfectly mediocre freelancing career. <laughs> yeah, so um, I kind of started out in paid search. Uh, I accidentally fell into a, uh, an internship, an unpaid internship with a paid search company. Um, and just from there, being involved in such a small agency setting, you kind of really do have to wear all the hats, if you will. Um, you have to be involved in the SEO strategy and the on-page content. Um, all the social media, all of the different kind of channels that come together to make a digital strategy. So I think I actually remember the day where the planets kind of aligned and I saw how all of the channels kind of work together. Um, so when I say perfectly mediocre, I mean I kind of was full service in that I, someone would say, can you do this? And I would be like, yeah, absolutely. 
and I kind of figure out how to do it. Uh, that did include web development. I'm a perfectly mediocre web developer <laughs> as well. Um, but my the strategies that I was delivering to my clients, I wouldn't consider those mediocre. Um, so when I say mediocre, I mean just I just kind of floating along, not really extending my career or learning new skills, um, just kind of utilizing the same ones that I had I had learned in my past life. <laughs> so what did you learn that prompted you to start the company? What what what, what did the transition look like? Yeah, so um, I think what I what I actually learned in starting the company is something that I knew kind of right from the start. Um, especially in digital marketing, you always have to be learning, and you always have to be looking for new ways to do things, and you always have to be kind of paying attention to what's going on in the sphere. Um, so the more I paid attention, the more I started to see, you know, that a single service agency that I that I was as a sole proprietorship it wasn't giving me the the same scalability and the same growth that I really wanted to have um, so what prompted me to to start this business with my co-founder was again that scalability I wanted something more I wanted to be able to offer more I wanted to you know really do cool things with people that have a bigger budget than a couple hundred bucks a month um, so I was I was excited to to start something bigger and to watch it grow and really put 100% into it to make it grow. So what's the key to starting a company in February and by November having it uh, be an eight-person team? Yeah, so I would say that what really sets us apart is our lean model that we have in, in the way that we're set up. Um, so a lot of people may or, may or may not disagree or agree with us, but we tend to work with just contractors. And I don't mean just contractors as in they're nothing special. I mean, we, we actually don't have any salaried employees on, on staff. And what that gives us the advantage of is that we're actually able to hire much more experienced, really, really self-driven and entrepreneurial. Uh, team members as opposed to just the intern that just graduated college that has no idea what they're doing. Um, so because we don't have any salaried employees, we actually are able to keep our overhead very, very low when it comes to an office. Um, we partner with a co-working space, uh, Make Offices in Chicago. Uh, we partner with them. We, we help them with their digital strategies as well. So we have a very small office that we that we don't have to pay for because of the partnership. Uh, we keep everything very, very clean. My co-founder and I actually don't pay ourselves quite yet, uh, just because everything that we have brought in in revenue, um, which is which is great to actually be in, in the positive revenue in the first couple of months, um, we put right back into the business. So we, we operate on a very lean model. Um, we focus really only where our skill sets are strongest, um, and then we push it off to other professionals. So we we have a pretty core team of uh, contractors that are experienced, and we have an extended team uh, of people that really, really specialize and we feel comfortable working with. So when you say you're reinvesting in the company, um, what are you investing in? Sure, we have a couple projects um, that are that are secret. Uh, we have a couple of software as a services that that we're trying to push. Hopefully, in the next year, um, we're trying to branch out into international market markets and and companies. Um, so we have a lot of cool things under our belt that we actually reinvest into. Um, secondly, we we do reinvest into <coughs> conferences where they make sense and and learning experiences where they make sense for my co-founder and, and myself, um, just to make sure that we're always kind of staying on top of the industry and, and actually, you know, growing this from growing it appropriately and, and smart, smartly, <laughs> intelligently, I suppose. Do you think there will ever be, ever be a point in time um, when you will hire full-time employees? 
Absolutely. I think that we will have full-time employees very, very shortly um, within the next couple months. Uh, it is very important to have a core team that's consistent and that you can really trust. Um, one of the challenges with, with contractors is that they often kind of come and go as they please, which is just sort of how the nature of the nature of the industry works. Um, so we definitely want to bring on full-time employees, but we want to make sure that we're, we're balancing out, you know, making sure that our employees are paid what they think they should be valued at, uh, which is something that you, you really have a lot of flexibility uh, on when you're a contractor. Um, and we want to make sure that our team has the amount of experience that is commensurate, commensurate with what we expect from them. Um, so we don't want to hire someone just out of college that has no idea what they're doing. Um, we don't really feel comfortable kind of giving that type of work to our clients. So we do want to have full-time employees. We just want to make sure that we're, we're able to get the experience levels that we really need our staff to have. Absolutely. Is that a um, something that you did intentionally or you've, you've learned from from other people or how'd you come across that model? Yeah, so that actually was one of the things I realized as a sole contractor myself. Um, so when I walk into a room, it sounds it sounds terribly cocky, um, but when I walk into a room with another company and I see, you know, three 21-year-old interns and then people kind of complain about, you know, having to having to work with a contractor. It's it's startling because you know just the amount of experience that you have um, when you when you've do, been doing your own thing is so much greater than you know just trying to find a job for a job's sake. You know when I when I had my solo contractor uh, kind of set up for myself you really care about what goes into it because that's your business. You know, if you, if you don't finish what you said you would finish, you don't get paid and, and that's it. Like, uh, there, there's no really kind of safety nets other than yourself. Um, so I've really found that working with contractors that consider themselves entrepreneurs that really take pride in their own personal business and, and the small business that is them, that is themselves. Um, we've just found, you know, the quality is, is that much better just from being in that same position. Um, both Dan and myself have been in, uh, in in the freelance in the contractor position uh, we've both put our hearts into everything that we do and, and we really hope that our employees would would mirror that got it very cool um, so let's get into a little bit about visual fizz and and how you guys uh, kick butt with the work you do um, so tell us a little bit more what does a typical project look like yeah, so a typical project could could look like many things um, digital marketing it just depends so much on what's going on around you. Um, so one client in a certain agency, or excuse me, in a certain industry might need, you know, just social media or just social media influencer marketing. Um, an another client in the same industry might want to be focused on local SEO. Um, another client in even the same industry might really, really want to focus on conversion rate optimization once they actually get users onto the page of their website. Um, so a typical project... Uh, it, it, the offers, the offers and services that we that we provide generally shift and change um, dependent on on the goals of the account um, or what we're actually trying to do. But generally, the the structure follows. Um, Dan, my co-founder, is the project manager, kind of to start off on all projects. We have a couple other project managers that we then pass work off to, um, but he's kind of the the head and, and the touch point, which is great because <laughs> he is much more organized and on it than I am. I'm the creative, if you will. Got <laughs> and it. He's, and he's the project manager. Um, so generally, he and I will discuss strategy. Uh, we will do usually a lot of competitive research and kind of current. 
industry analysis just so we, we know what to expect. Um, between him and myself, you know, we usually have some kind of experience in, in most industries. Um, nothing is really ever new. Uh, we, we do a little bit of audience analysis to make sure that we're actually kind of targeting the people that we actually want to target rather than throwing, you know, marketing noodles at the fridge to see what sticks. Um, after a little bit of, you know, competitor analysis and audience analysis, we'll actually build campaigns out. Um, so what that looks like, again, varies. Uh, it just, it truly depends on, on the goals of the account. Um, but we would then assign, you know, our, our top person that we have on staff that would fit the account personality-wise and skill set-wise. Um, we always like to make sure there's a good fit with the team that we assign to each client, um, just because the personality and voice and tone of actually what you put out into the world matters so much. Um, and then from there, it's it's a lot of project management. It's a lot of back and forth. I tend to be the, the QA on almost everything before it's sent to the client because I have kind of a stronger, uh, maybe not stronger digital marketing background, but more of a strategic and, and actually down in the trenches sort of background. Um, so I tend to queue everything that goes in and out. Uh, and then from there, it's, it's kind of a rinse and repeat process. You know, we set new goals. We analyze past data. So if that's data from a previous campaign, uh, then we'll, we'll apply learnings that we've taken from what we've done previously and apply it to a new campaign. So yeah, that's generally the, the process. It's kind of a, a set rinse and repeat process. Sure. So are there any industries where you wouldn't recommend digital, digital marketing as a solution? Um, that is an excellent question. There are some industries where the traditional channels don't necessarily make sense. And I think that this is where um, some of the, the newer startups or even some of the more niche industries really kind of struggle. And that's why there's only a couple companies that seem to be able to do it right. Is I think that a lot of times uh, certain industries, will they'll just kind of just push against a brick wall that's never really going to move for them. They'll just throw money at you know certain advertising channels or they, they think SEO is going to solve all their problems. Um, or if they just get a, a cool enough Twitter feed going up, then people will just flock to them. Um, Why so do you I see people making that mistake? Yeah, I, it's, I think that people make the mistake just because they think that there's one set path that leads to success online, and that's just not true. Um, everybody, not, not every company has $5 million to have TV advertisements, and not every startup out there has 10 years of historical data to, to fall back onto. Um, so I think that just kind of blindly pushing forward into digital strategies is, is not the way to go for a lot of industries. Um, lots of industries that have restrictions or even legislation around what they can and can't say or what they're able to actually advertise, traditional marketing channels just aren't really going to work for them. Um, and, and a lot of times businesses give up at that point and, and that's sad to see as well. Totally. So you mentioned before uh, we started recording that you've worked with some restricted or alternative industries. Uh, I'm just curious, how, how does working with those industries compare to uh, digital marketing in general? Yeah, so working with restricted um, and kind of limited industries is one of my favorite things to work with. <laughs> it makes me sound like I take joy in other people's struggles. I don't, um, but I do kind of like the challenge of, of trying to find out what works um, and, and what doesn't. So working with uh, industries like cannabis or working with industries like healthcare even, um, I've really found that I enjoy the challenge of trying to figure out, you know, this is what we can and can't say. These are 
are the rules. Um, you're usually able to find a lot of deep analysis, or you're able to be one of the first people to create a deep analysis based on some of the data that you're working with. Um, so generally speaking, it's it's definitely the road less traveled by, and there's much less competition. We can do really cool things. Um, it's, it's kind of just about being scrappy and smart at the same time, is, is kind of what I say. It's almost like people who won't touch those industries, it's not because of any, I guess, moral issues, but instead because they just don't know how. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and especially in a, uh, an industry like cannabis where it's constantly changing, um, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of risk in being associated with, um, you know, a, an industry that may or may not be legal where you live or where your mom lives <laughs> or, or something like that. And, and there's a lot of struggle in, in trying to learn and actually find out what you can and can't do. Um, the, the highway of, of traditional marketing is, is much wider and much bigger than, than the, the highways and, and kind of side roads that sort of the restricted industries have to take. Um, so it's a lot more difficult to, to try and navigate new new industries and constantly changing industries than it is to just stick to your regular Facebook ads. Plus, with your regular Facebook ads, you, you don't need to explain to your mom at Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's true. It's on. true. The way that I explain it is everybody needs marketing. Every every company does so. It's I'm not I'm not there to judge where you come from. I'm just there to help you sell your product or service. Absolutely. Um, how do how do alternative industries um, leverage digital marketing if they can't use traditional means? Yeah. So if they aren't able to use traditional means, or there's there's restrictions on on what these companies can and can't promise or can and can't say, um, usually one of the first things to do <laughs> would be to learn what you can't do. Um, it's it's important to not just go kind of blindly out into into this this beast that is digital marketing, um, especially. Is that something that you help them with? It is. Yeah. So so my past experience and learning, um, I can usually say, you know, starting out, we're going to start with caution. This is this is what we can. And can't say you can't use these these words. Um, so generally, when I start a, a digital strategy, I start very cautiously and very slowly. You know, you kind of work up to pushing things a little harder and, and, and sort of testing the boundaries and walking the line a little bit, but you definitely shouldn't do that right off the bat. There's no matter what, no matter how much experience you have in an industry, there's always going to be things that you have to learn. There's always going to be a learning curve. There's always going to be things that you didn't expect to happen. Um, so it's better to experiment kind of quietly and slowly, um, sort of the, the tortoise in the race rather than the hare for success. Sure. After you learn the regulations, what's the next step? Yeah, so after I learn kind of the regulations about what we can and can't say, we actually tend to look at competitors um, and, and we'll look at what other similar companies or, or, or businesses in the industry that we're working in are doing. Um, we'll pay attention to any fallbacks. We'll constantly stay updated um, on any kind of new information that comes out. Uh, we tend to build campaigns that we know will work, again, kind of quietly, kind of softly, um, and then learn what we can and slowly kind of push the dial from there. Got it. And then, and then after competitors, what's next? 
Yeah, so after competitors is usually where the fun stuff starts. Um, so this, again, would depend on the goals of, of the campaign, and this would depend on, on kind of what we plan to do for, for the business we're working with. Um, but we usually will undergo some sort of community growth. Uh, so what that means is creating you know, a, a, a small community around a topic that we're trying to create. Generally, this is done with social media. Um, as we spoke of before, the cannabis industry and companies, they're barely allowed on social media as it is. Um, any kind of social media platform is an independent third-party platform, so they can set the rules about what's allowed. Facebook can say, I don't care if this is legal in California, you can't talk about it at all. Um, and they, they fully have a right to do that. So that's something we would look at. We'd look at things that have worked in the past. Um, we, we would look at certain channels and reg restrictions. Um, just for example, Facebook might not make sense. Uh, a channel like Reddit might be more appropriate for a cannabis company. Um, or a channel like, you know, even Twitter, if you can drive you know, traffic to the website. So from there, generally what we recommend is to figure out the channels that make the most sense for you, build up a small kind of community following, and then from that community base, it's basically just support that community as much as you can. Uh, generally that means creating content, and when you are in a kind of restricted industry, one of the first things that I recommend doing is, is to build up your own written and, and graphic content. Um, so there's nothing, there's no restrictions. Facebook has no power about what you put on your blog. Um, and, you know, even the state of whatever state you're in, uh, they have no control over what you actually put on your blog. Um, I mean, in the whole breadth of the internet, <laughs> there's there's crazy things out there. So you, you really do have a lot of freedom and autonomy when it comes to writing your own content, um, creating your own blog post and, and RSS feed. Um, and then sharing that content that you can create on your on your social channels organically. Um, you are allowed to post things as a brand organically with no restrictions. So that organically means with no paid budget behind it. So no boosted post, uh, no promoted posts, no sponsored ads that say, you know, we sell cannabis products. That's super not allowed. Um, but you are allowed to post, we just wrote this blog, check it out onto your Facebook page. Um, so usually it's kind of just finding the right path to, to share that content and create that community. Um, but generally speaking, we say that content is, is the first place to start. Totally. Um, all right, let's get into a couple news stories here. Uh, first news story, I guess both are from your team, but the first one, why experiential marketing experts will rule 2017. Can you tell us about your article, Marissa? Yeah, sure thing. So we wrote this article um, just because of all of the technological advancements in, in 2017 that have happened in terms of social media, in terms of social media algorithms. Um, just for example, Facebook's algorithm has drastically changed even in the last 12 months. So now they are not showing you things that just happen to come up in your feed in order. Um, they're trying to kind of guess what you'll like the most. So they, they push high activity pieces up high um, on your news feed and they kind of push down ones that aren't getting a lot of activity. Activity. Uh, they tend to value photos over text, um, text and links. So anything that is visually appealing will, will get pushed up first. Uh, so, so the whole concept of, of this article piece was that in 2017 especially, especially in the coming years and years to come, um, marketers are just going to have to do more. <laughs> They're just going to have to figure out the best way to actually make that 
emotional connection with their audience uh, to kind of reconnect in a, in a real person way since everything else is being so drowned out in technology. Um, from, from ad blockers to Facebook algorithms, the marketers just need to pay attention to the, the human connection that, that exists and needs to exist um, for, for a real community growth to, to happen. Totally, makes sense. Um, our second article today, um, A Smart Brand's Guide to Savage Social Media Strategies. Can you tell us a little bit more about your article here? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite articles that we've had written. The, the writer that did it for us is... Uh, I don't want to say he's a jerk, but he kind of <laughs> he kind of is a jerk when it comes to um, cynicism and, and calling people out on their stuff. So this was actually a call out to uh, the brands on social media that have a little bit of an attitude when they respond. You know, I don't know if you've if you've seen or heard the the Wendy's Twitter feed. Um, they they tend to give right. a lot of a lot of shade um, to to other companies. Um, so this we actually wrote this because. Being a smart ass is, is what we call it on there. Being a smart ass on social media can benefit your brand and it, it really can help you stand out from the crowd. Uh, it can help you have a little bit of personality behind your brand instead of just the cut and dry hey, buy our stuff kind of, kind of concept. Um, but it also can go way too far and it can make you, you know, look, look terrible. You can provide bad customer service. Uh, so we wrote it to kind of help to, to unblur the lines uh, between having a little bit of an attitude to the point where it's funny and witty and cool and then actually taking it too far and, and upsetting your, your customers. How do you put the trust in someone managing your social media account to understand that line? Yeah, so that's actually one of the reasons why on our team we look at the team member's personality as well as the voice and tone of, of the uh, account that we're trying to promote or, or run on social media. Um, voice and tone are critical on, on social, so it's important that you are able to find a digital marketer or a manager that can that can mirror the voice and tone that your brand is looking for. Um, social media is certainly not an easy job by any means, and, and mirroring that voice and tone as it, as it needs to reflect your brand is, is one of the most difficult aspects of actually being a social media manager. Totally makes sense. Um, let's see. So I'm curious, do you find voice and tone being more relevant in B2C or is it also relevant in B2B? Um, it is relevant to be in, in B2B. A lot of times people think that, you know, if you just write a bunch of blog content just for your customers, then, you know, you'll, you'll be golden. Um, but if you are trying to really make B2B connections and, and B2B sales even, um, people actually do read the content. Usually the voice and tone has to adjust a little bit. Um, so the individual consumer needs to kind of have more of a real person tone. Um, they tend to be okay with, you know, social colloquialisms of the time or the use of slang. Um, maybe even memes, you know, if it's an individual, you have to kind of make that personal connection. Whereas if someone is representing a business, they're in the business mindset, they need professional information, they need data, they kind of don't really want to laugh at a meme when they're trying to learn about the ways that a product could support their own business. Um, so voice and tone definitely needs to shift depending on the target audience. Um, it definitely needs to shift depending on where that target audience lives. Just for example, we, we definitely would use a different voice and tone when posting, you know, like a jewelry company to Facebook than we would maybe a, a car company on LinkedIn. Um, so, so voice and tone need to change drastically, and it's important for us to be able to switch kind of that voice and tone as, as we need to. Totally. 
Uh, and we are out of time, so that's it for today on FjordCast. Uh, you can find Marissa's company at visualfizz.com. That's visualfizz.com. Uh, you can also find her on Twitter at MarissaRyan25. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Marissa. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, and thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. You can download episodes of the program by going to fjordsdigital.com slash fjordcast or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio.